Hi, everyone. Katie Anderson here, and I am so thrilled to be speaking with Jim Benson about his new book, The Collaboration Equation. Uh, we I just had a chance to uh, read it this week, and you can see with all the stickies here that there's a lot to talk about and a lot of great takeaways. So um, listen in and provide your comments later, too. We'd love to hear from you. Jim, welcome to my author interview series. It's good to be here. Great. We were just talking about when the first time was that we met, which I think it was, you know, we've known each other for, of each other for years, but it was about mm -hmm. 2017 at the Lean Coaching Summit. You were leading a Lean Coffee and we we're up in Seattle. So yeah, that, yeah, Josh and me. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, well, the thing I like most about uh, doing those large scale Lean Coffees is just that you have a whole room full of people that are staring at you and in less than 10 minutes, they're all talking. Yep. It's just, it's all activity. And you can go from being at the front of the room to being almost entirely ignored. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful and rapid transition. I love it. It is the best uh, facilitation skill is to uh, be as lazy as possible to get everyone else <laughs> to talk. And that's your success as a facilitator when it's not you doing all the talking, but you've created that framework and the structure for engagement and collaboration, which is the topic of the topic your of book, book and what I'm excited to dive into with you here today. So before we get started, maybe you could tell everyone a little bit about yourself um, for some context. Okay. Um, I'm Jim Benson. The, the quick nickel tour of me is uh, I have been thinking about ways that people collaborate and engage in collaboration for as long as I can remember. Uh, and first like major collaborations were in high school when I had a punk band in the middle of Nebraska. Uh, we had to figure out every business element of having a band. So how do we play? How do we get money? How do we distribute records? How do we make them? Uh, so all of those things at the age of like 14 or 15, how to how to play in a bar that doesn't allow people over 20 under 21 in uh, when you're when you're 15, that type of thing. Um, and of course, then doing that in a place that was actively hostile to us and our product. <laughs> um, uh, from there, uh, at, uh, after high school, figured out that that probably wasn't a good long term solution for like a career, went into psychology. I uh, realized that if I got a degree in that, I would only hang out with psychologists. Uh, so then I went into urban planning and um, and uh, civil engineering and did that, became a transportation engineer and an urban planner and did really weird, crazy projects after that. I built subways, freeways, things with multi-billion dollar price tags, but also things that required a lot of interjurisdictional collaboration giant regions like the Seattle region or the Phoenix region or Los Angeles. Um, or uh, one of my favorite projects was getting products across the Mexican border at the Nogales border crossing between Arizona and Sonora. That was the first project that I ever did a value stream map for, a grape coming from Michoacan, getting all the way to an Albertsons. It ended up being so long that it wrapped twice around the conference room that I was presenting it in. Uh, I did the value stream map in Corel Draw, so it was a very long time ago. <laughs> uh, 96, I think. Um, but that was my first taste of actual process. 
Somewhere in there, I ran a major part of the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt, started a software company, did a bunch of other things. And then those things all led to me starting to build tools to for collaboration and lean, like Lean Coffee or Kanban or Personal Kanban or things like that. And in a, in a nutshell, that that's me. I guess now uh, I have an online school called Modus Institute, which is also a community where people around the world talk about lean and agile and the future of work. Yeah, awesome. That's a, it's a big, big nickel, context sorry. to lead up to my next question. So, <laughs> if you look at that, that whole arc and where you're at today, what was it that really inspired you to write this book, The Collaboration Equation? And maybe what was the problem you were trying to solve? <laughs> Um, uh, I am, I am, a, I am a person of copious inspirations. <laughs> so, so trying to figure, pull something coherent out of that is going to be interesting for me. So all of the things that I have enjoyed doing have involved groups of people who actually care about the product coming together and figuring out how to create that product. And that could have been, again, it could have been music, it could have been the quilt, it could have been roadways or or what, what have you. Or Portland, I uh, had a beautiful experience uh, being an urban planner in Portland, Oregon. Um, but when I set out to write the book, The Collaboration Equation, uh, I had told people that my goal was to become the Kurt Vonnegut of management. <laughs> So I wanted this to be one of those stories. So almost every Kurt Vonnegut book is a thinly veiled book about Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> almost everything is like something he's desperately grappling with in, in his in his own life, past, present, or future, which is also why in his books, things bounce back and forth between past, present, and future. So this book started off as a 750-page sarcasm rant experience that uh tom Ehrenfeld, my editor promptly beat out of the book <laughs> it is now a very very focused book on how groups come together and collaborate uh so i didn't get the vonnegutty part in there but what i did get in there was the storytelling part of the book so um when information comes without context, you put it into an arbitrary context almost immediately. So when I set out to write this book, I was like, I'm going to give all of these stories and they're, they're, they're case studies if we want to call them that. But what they really are is they're making sure that the context for the information in that chapter or that section is, is told in a way that has the care that Kurt Vonnegut told his stories. So he cared a lot about all of his customers, all of his uh, subjects, regardless of how awful those people might be. And so I tell stories about some of my clients, who some of whom are really awesome, and some of whom required the same care as some of the Kurvonica characters. <laughs> uh, so that that's that that's my main my main inspiration is could I tell a story? set of stories that really helped people learn that they need to work to work, that somebody's not just going to come in and bless them with the lean stick or the agile stick or something. Yeah. 
And that's great. And one of the things I thought was really powerful, you did that quite successfully, is the storytelling in there. And you do have some sarcastic humor in there too. So it, it wouldn't be me without it. It didn't get stripped out. <laughs> really great visuals and storytelling and examples about how uh, you've helped companies apply these concepts and how and how others can do the same. So I thought that was mm -hmm. a really um, high, powerful highlight of the book. Mm -hmm. Companies Maybe. and agencies and groups. Yeah. It, it I've worked a lot with government and governments around the world from everything down from a very local government to the UN. And what I find is that all governments and all corporations are the same thing. They're individuals and teams creating value. And trying to work together, but often having things getting in the way of that. Mm -hmm. That leads to, uh, there was a quote early in the book that really stood out to me in particular around something you just said around our lean and agile practices. And I want to read the quote and then maybe you can talk about, uh, talk about it. So this is on page 30. You said, today we regularly build and maintain anti-collaborative cultural patterns without realizing it. Our lean and agile rhetoric works against its original intent. We're anxious mm -hmm. to blindly follow the patterns, not thoughtfully deploy them to solve problems or make things better. And I thought that was spot on. Uh, <laughs> maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what you observe and how this sort of led into more like some of the content of the book. Well, and I think like as so I'm assuming that most most people listening are in one way or another a lean practitioner. And I think we've all heard gone into a place or talked to people and are like, oh God, lean. I hate lean. And it's like, it is actually functionally impossible to hate lean. All lean means is that tomorrow sucks less than today. And you really can't hate that. <laughs> but but what they do hate is that they've had senseis or bullies or jerks come in and use lean as an excuse or have interpreted lean in a way that's that's um that's heavy-handed. And uh there's one very painful moment that's not in the book uh, where I was in a city in the Midwest and it was me, guy with lean name, and then other lean sensei with lean name. And other guy and I went to visit a set of plants in this city and talk about what we saw, right? And he pulled the he pulled an utter ono on every one of them he went in and he's like that's bad that's bad i don't even know why i'm here that's so bad you're bad you're badder than the bad bad guy and uh and these people were honestly trying to make their work better <laughs> and it didn't didn't meet with his expectations so he gets to the last company and he blows up on them and then he leaves and everybody in the room is completely demoralized. And there's like, and there was like literally 40 people in this big room sitting around this big circle. And they're all just like, and I just looked at them and I was like, you guys are so bad. Everything bad. Let's go look how bad everything is. And they just looked at me and I was like, I just started laughing. I was like, you guys have completely nailed it. This what you did out there, and I, and I listed all of these things. I said, this was cool. This was cool. This was cool. And they also had done some things that you don't see very often. Like they actually had their salespeople involved in, in how they were setting up their processes. You know, so they were doing 
you know, in restaurant, what would be back of house and front of house, we're, we're working together. And that is that I spend so much time deprogramming people from bad lean and agile coaches because they come with the with the tools first. And that just chafes me. <laughs> I'm I'm so right there with you too, Jim. <laughs> you know, the principles and practices of of lean are actually so people-centered and full of respect and collaboration and creative learning. Um, but some of the way it's been applied and, and translated uh, has really given given it a bad name. You know, in in my book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, I, I share how from Mr. Asao Yoshino's experience of being at Toyota through the mm-hmm. 60s into the 2000s, you know, Toyota made a conscious decision to actually move away from more of that rough Ono style leadership mm-hmm. to one that was much more people-centered, um, a leader as coach and people developer. And, and that's somehow that got missed in our, in our translation and our focus on like, you know, just myopic focus on like waste elimination, which is important, but it's, that's the byproduct of cultivating collaboration and people's creativity. So yeah. I think you and I could probably go on that one. For yeah. a long time. Waste reduction is a means to an end. It's not the end in of itself. We would never have at the end of any, any value stream map and we reduced waste. <laughs> Because that wouldn't be value add. No. Yeah. I love this focus that you have on, on collaboration. You know, I, as I was reading your book too, I was thinking back to my early days of when I was first learning lean and um, I was working in uh, a children's healthcare hospital. And the thing that really just, it, it actually made me a convert was pulling people together to solve problems where they had maybe never had that opportunity to collaborate. Um, They were working in their silos and never had the chance to sort of see each other's work or Mm -hmm. to solve a problem they all cared about, you know, it'd be like wait time in the pediatric cancer center. And, you know, Mm -hmm. when you, when you can foster that collaboration, that is where the, the, the joy came and the real problem solving. So I, I thought how, you really nailed that so well in your in your book, and also help provide um, ways and methods that people can really foster that collaboration. Yeah, so. that that's the that was the big thing is that I realized um, I, after you know I, I spent a lot of time working with uh, John Shook and with others. I spent a lot of time visiting. Uh, if you go to the Modus site, we have over a hundred clients on the site. It's been a whirlwind of the uh, last 15 or 20 years. Um, and so many people are like, we've started our lean journey. We've started our agile journey, our CI journey, our whatever we want to call our journey. Uh, and we keep getting lost and they keep getting lost because they're focused on the tools and they haven't taken the time to actually not just define, but also instantiate their culture. And so if you build an Obeya, if you do an A3, it should not operate at cross purposes to your culture. And so what we would see all the times is people would put up, uh, you know, a, a, a Jim Benson style Kanban on a wall, and then they would make themselves slaves to that board 
our work has to flow this way. We have to get this done. We've got, and it's like, oh. no, <laughs> no, no. It, your 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 process is the way that the people on your teams interact, and they need to have that as an agreement in and of themselves. It doesn't come from a book somewhere. It's what do you need to do to get the work done? Absolutely. And, you know, I was just talking actually at uh, the time of this recording to Asao Yoshino in Japan last night. We we're preparing a workshop on how to create a more powerful A3. But the whole per point is the, the template doesn't matter. It's a framework to help you. But he said, like, create your own framework based on what you need. And that sounds yeah. like we offer we offer these frameworks and tools as a starting point. But it's, you know, it's about how are you collaborating? How are you sharing knowledge? How are you communicating? That's what's the most important. So, so like for for like Miro, they wanted me to make an A3 template. And I was like, my A3 template would let's say it would have a sentence that would say, "Make your own damn A3 template." <laughs> um, and it, what I love, and when I love when I'm teaching like personal Kanban classes or or other other classes, and we and we get to the A3 part, I tell people just Google image A3 thinking, yes, and you will get. 70 different versions of an A3 and all of them are valid. Mm, you know, yes. you don't need the leaper on it. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's the thinking process. And have you answered several questions and visually conveyed it? Like those are the, it's like leading with the principles, not the the rigidity. And, I, and uh, I'm so aligned with you on that. Mm. There, you actually were leading into a quote that I wanted to read because I think this is really powerful too. And you, we've talked about it a bit, but you say on page 130, without understanding your culture, you will never obtain a culture of continuous improvement. Uh, and then you go on to talk about how people can understand their culture. Maybe you can, uh, you know, what have you come to learn about that value of understanding your culture and how that influences how we create continuous improvement cultures? So years ago, we went to work for a company. Uh, before we arrived at that company, the um, the upper management of that company took us out for coffee. And they said, we have to warn you that we don't actually have the best and brightest here. So you're probably worse, used to working with the best and brightest. We don't have that. And so we're like, okay. So then we go in and we go in and work with these people. Uh, most of them don't have a college degree. Um, and, uh, they are very down on themselves, very frustrated with themselves. And we say, you know, right now you're doing all, and we go through all these things and we're like, this is really silly. This is really silly. Like, yeah. We do silly things. Cause we're so stupid. <laughs> and we said, you know, you don't have to do those silly things. Like, what do you mean? I was like, you can do anything else that you want. And so we gave them a little bit of structure and then we left for a couple, for a month and then came back. And in that month, they built a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful system. And they were going crazy and their throughput was through the roof and their quality was through the roof and they were training each other and they were laughing and they were enjoying being at work. And, and uh, they said, you know, we just wish that we were able to do this before. And one of their bosses said, look, I told you guys, you had agency. Mm. You can't tell someone that they have agency. 
<laughs> you, you cannot command someone to be free. <laughs> they're, they're actually, freedom isn't just the absence, freedom isn't anarchy, no matter what my teenage punk rockers might have thought. Freedom is a system that allows you to act with confidence. It gives you the information that you need when you need it. it. It recognizes when you've made a decision. It gives you the opportunity to learn and share learning and so on. And so what was happening was, and what happens all the time, is bosses will come in and say, we have no tolerance for a lack of psychological safety, or there will be no more institutional bias in this company. And then they will leave and people are like, wow, I feel safe and unbiased now. <laughs> We actually have to do the work. And we have to show up that way, embody it. So, yep, the decree does not uh, create the culture. No, no. So I was really intrigued by your uh, your five principles of collaboration. Uh, principle one, paying attention. Principle two, give a damn. Principle three, improvement is your job. Principle four, information drives action. And principle five, trust but visual visualize. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did you come up with this uh, succinct list of five? And that's my first question. <laughs> and then the second is, uh, where do you usually start when you're working with an organization? Okay, so uh, the, the the first question I will answer completely honestly, because Tom Ehrenfeld made me. <laughs> Another reason you have a good editor. <laughs> he's, like, he's, like, he's like, you need to list out the principles. And so it actually took a while because it started off you know, like Deming's 14 points that became 16, then 21, then 14 again, and so forth. You you, you play with these concepts because um, you want to be general enough in them to inspire action, but you want to be specific enough to not inspire the wrong, the wrong action. And so for me, those last two are particularly important um the the trust but visualize one playing a little bit off of the reagan era perestroika stuff is um that uh no matter how much i trust you or you trust me there's too much going on every day for us to keep track of it or update each other verbally or in a document so if we have a an obeya and in that room all of the information is in there that keeps us informed that passive information radiator allows us not just to continue trusting, but to build more trust. So if you're off in your silo and you're working and I can't see you, I don't know what you're doing. And the longer that goes on, the more I start to worry that you're not getting your stuff done because I know that I'm not getting my stuff done. <laughs> so in any organization that I've been in, healthcare, construction, software development, international development, whatever, uh, government. If people can see what's going on, they do a better job. Uh, and I've got 40 million stories to tell for that, but I will tell the super quick one, which is in um, LEI had a longstanding relationship with the um, GE large appliance division in Louisville, Kentucky. And if you went into plant five of that, of that, of that facility, you would find that plant five was very different from the other plants. And one of the things they had was a big obeya that they called the blue room. The blue room had tons of information in it, sales, distribution, uh, how many, how many 
refrigerators were dropped last week in Oregon, you know, things like that. And the people on the line came in often. I'm not going to say every day, but some of them did come in every day to find out what was going on. And it drastically changed how they did their job. Did they need to know sales data need? No, they didn't. Did it make them feel? Did, did, no, not did it make them feel. Did it actually make them part of the process? Yes. So the provision of information isn't just a gift that you give people to make them feel, feel good. It's something that they really did need to understand the context of their work. I love that. Thank you for that for that story and an example. Story right. There's it's that collab like visualizing and and you know, always say you know, we need to make the invisible visible. And that's such mm -hmm. a key tenant. So I mean that goes from the personal Kanban to just visualizing information and sharing it so that we mm -hmm. can all have a better sense of what's happening. No one can act on information they don't have. Right. And you don't know at any given point in time what actions they're capable of taking. Hmm. Uh, that's that's beautiful, too, because that's giving, you know, it's seeing the potential in people. And right. Like mm -hmm. that's how we lift lift people up and the, the creativity and the capability is there. Mm -hmm. If we can um, provide space for that to thrive and, and, and be nurtured. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, later in the book, too, you talk about how uh, you leadership differs from other functions such as administration and management, <laughs> uh, which I thought was a really nice uh, clarification of, of leadership and that leadership doesn't have to necessarily be a functional management role. Um, yet these are all really important roles. Yeah. So if, if you think about those three things, like what is one thing you've personally had to adjust in your style to become a better collaborative leader? Mm, mm. Uh, a better collaborator to give people the space to lead. Right. Uh, so the in chapter eight, I try my best to debunk almost every management book, every leadership book that's ever been written. <laughs> I go directly for the jugular for people like Jack Welch. Uh, and, and the reason is because I commonly see management confused with leadership. And leadership is an action that helps further the progress of the project being undertaken. Uh, and that can be vision. It can be implementing a new tool. It can be uh, an innovation, whatever it might be. So when building any project, not surprisingly, I try to make sure everything's visual. But the other thing that we do is we start with the previous chapters of the book where we try to build what's called a right environment. And that right environment is the group that's doing the work, regardless of level, getting together and discussing how, what the, what the details are of that work. So we do a value stream map, but our value stream mapping tools are extended from the usual toolkit. So we look at relationships, we look at collaborative opportunities, things like that. Um, then the group goes through and says, okay, now what is our culture? And we do that through a series of interactive exercises, not through people saying, I think it's this, because you won't get anything useful out of that. But not to go into too much detail, a pretty detailed collaborative uh, exercise to figure out what the culture is. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good chunk of the book. <laughs> uh, then uh, the communications agreement. 
And the reason that's important is, again, because people run on information. Even if they're screwing in wiring harnesses in the back of a double door, bottom drawer fridge in Louisville, Kentucky, they run on information. Uh, and so we want to find out what information we're, we're exchanging, how we exchange it, what tools we use, in what tools does our information go to die? How often every day do we ask each other, hey, what was this decision we made? Or where is this? Or where's this document? Or blah, 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 blah. Do we know where our information is? And then at the end of that, you build out a plan for how you're going to work together. The reason that comes before leadership is because that provides people with the, the, the bedrock, the foundation on which to, what the book calls act with confidence. Acting with confidence is leadership. It's saying, okay, right now I see that the group has this need. The product has this need. The company has this need. Earth has this need. I can help. I can help do that personally for me, to go back all the way back and answer the original question, what I've had to adjust in me is obviously from the way I'm speaking right now, I can lecture and I can be really bombastic <laughs> and I can just go. And, uh, it, and so what I have to do is I have to go in with exercises that specifically make me shut up. <laughs> then I can point to things when they happen and say, here's, here's a mini lecture, here's a mini lecture, but, but the lectures always come with, uh, with confidence. The leadership from me always comes with confidence and, or, or with, uh, with uh, context and the um, actions of the group then spur from, from those seedlings. <laughs> you're, well, you're, right. You're leading or teaching based on what's needed or the context to move things forward rather mm -hmm. than just pontificating. Uh, so be, be focused. Uh, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing, sharing your own tidbit and also going into more of, you know, the framework of how you help organizations really create that or mm -hmm. create that bedrock of that foundational understanding for themselves uh, of the right learning environment or the right environment. Right environment. Uh, so now I'm going to switch a little bit into the process of actually writing this book, the collaboration. Okay. You've already shared that it started off and you talk about this at the end of the book, like, you know, 600 pages or something that, that uh, your editor, Tom, helped help whittle down to yes. half that. Uh, what is one thing that you discovered or learned with a new perspective through the process of writing the book? Life is a combination of discovery and rediscovery. <laughs> uh, so uh, Paul, Paul Simon uh, put that as the future is beauty and sorrow. <laughs> uh, and uh, so what fascinates me about, this is a weird sentence, what fascinates me about myself, <laughs> it's so fascinating, and about writing this book is the number of a number of lessons that I relearned while going through the book. Um, so one of the things that you never do but wish you had done at the beginning of a project is take more pictures. <laughs> I had so many different visualizations of how this book was flowing that were used for a while ran their course and had to be replaced with entirely different visualizations. 
And there were big chunks of time in there where that first visualization would would drop off and then there would be nothing. During the time that there was nothing, my stress level would go through the roof. And I, I, the almighty Jim Benson would live like that for days, weeks, months, because this book took six years to, to write. And every time I would come up with the new visualization, I would calm down. I'd be like, oh man, I feel so much better. God, I should have remembered that. And then that visualization would run its course and I would do it again. <laughs> because, because I'm human. And and I hate that. <laughs> so so Daniel Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow says being aware of a cognitive bias does not make you immune to the cognitive bias. <laughs> Hofstetter's law says that human beings will underestimate any complex task, even if they're aware of Hofstetter's law. I know that Jim Benson has this law I haven't quite written out yet, but there's this law that basically says you will get it together and then you will fall apart and then you'll get it together again and then you will fall apart, even if you're aware of Jim Benson's law falling apart. <laughs> uh, um, so the, the key thing for me there is when we're involved in a group there's always others that have your back that will keep the visualizations going when you start to fall off, will keep the process in check when you start to fall off. They can watch you start to fall off and provide care and vice versa. And it's really hard to do that when we treat our work as solo work. Mm. Really, 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 really hard. And so lots of people will say, hey, I read Personal Kanban. I loved it. I did it for a while. And then I, and then I couldn't anymore. And it's like, really? Did your fingers break? Did you run out of Post-it notes? <laughs> it's like, no, you fell off the wagon. You know, get, get back on. Get back on. Yep. Well, that's where the structure helps. But I love what you said, too. It's that you are part of a, a team and other people can help lift you up in those times that you're falling apart. So how to not isolate ourselves and to, mm -hmm. to leverage those around us. Cause we're all, we're all probably falling apart and coming together at different times. So yep. that's, that's, that's the beauty of the team, right. Or the yep. operation as well. Yep. Creative regenerative decay. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, for people like you and me, uh, where we do a lot of traveling, you know, and we're on our own. So uh, from uh, often, uh, it becomes hard to figure out how that collaboration works or should work. Hmm. That, that's true. I mean, I've always, I have to intentionally seek out people with whom to collaborate mm -hmm. or to have conversations or to, to help me. I don't, I personally have learned I do not work best in isolation. I mean, there is time to be processing, reflecting and the, you know, the process of writing. Sometimes you need that alone time yep. you need to come together and, build off of with other people as well so uh one plus one equals much more than two and yep. so and certainly much more than one by itself um so all right so we're into my last question it's been okay. such a great conversation but uh and i know that you have many ways that you could answer this but what <laughs> is what is one question that i haven't asked you or that you're not usually asked about the book what is that what is that one question and then what's your answer um, now I just have to figure out how to word it. Um, 
why are process and people the same thing? Mm. Right. <laughs> so why are process and people the same thing? <laughs> Thank you for that great question. <laughs> so um, I, I remember... Let's see if I can tell us about tearing up. Uh, uh, you lose a lot of people <laughs> over over the course of a lifetime. Uh, years ago, uh, I was maybe 22, uh, 21 or 22, and I'd gone back to Grand Island, Nebraska over the holidays. And I got together with a lot of my old bandmates and uh, and and we were in Corey's living room and we were recording stuff. And uh, Dave Fisher walks in and he has this piece of paper with writing all over it in every direction. And he says, here's here's the song we're going to record next. And we all went over and we looked at it and uh, we made some noises and then all of a sudden fell into recording the this song called called Money. Uh, and uh, and I. Um, uh, yeah, I think that was the song. Um, and everything about that moment was completely comfortable. Uh, anyone could screw up any of their parts on any instrument and other people would carry them along. Um, I, the song ended up having like five sections that just evolved on their own. Uh, and and it flowed. It's just really fun, beautiful song. Uh, and no, it wasn't a thrash hardcore punk song. It was kind of like this weird bluegrassy new wave thing. Um, <laughs> but um, but there and uh, when I was working on the quilt, obviously no one was paid to work on the Names Project A's Memorial Quilt. But in creating it, we created the largest memorial in history, the largest public art project in history uh, and uh, helped tens or hundreds or thousands maybe millions of people grieve and and express themselves uh all of that was people coming together for a specific goal and there's one story in the book where there's this team there's this company and the company is literally about to implode because of their own we'll just say their own level of defects <laughs> and the whole company has to come together to fix this it's kind of you know you would you you would swear that i had walked into a theory of constraints playhouse <laughs> but but everyone had to come together to to swarm on this one constraint and before we started everyone was angry they were angry with each other they were angry with the problem they were angry with having to interrupt their work to do this other stuff the moment they started working on it the goal was clear the uh huge complexity of solving the problem was clear and everyone rose to that challenge because everyone rose to that challenge the people in that place were the process we didn't have to tell them you do this and you do this or you do this they set up their own egalitarian system of how to do that and when those things happen Product is better, it happens faster, and you go home energized. And that's what the book is for, and that's what I want for people. And I tried my best throughout it to provide practical ways to achieve it. 
great answer to a really <laughs> provocative question. <laughs> uh, thank you for talking to me about the collaboration equation. Um, mm -hmm. I highly recommend people check it out. There's you know, some really wonderful insights we've just uh, scratched the surface on today. As you can tell, Jim's a great storyteller and this book is full of stories and great visualization across the whole book uh, as well. So you did, you came back, you pulled it together, you got the visuals in there. Um, when the first version of this book came back from my designer, I literally cried. <laughs> tears of joy like, or tears of sorrow? <laughs> oh, no, because it was just, it, the book was beautiful. And at the end of six years, you really needed to see something, something beautiful. And the book is the book is gorgeous. <laughs> the book is gorgeous. Uh, it's one of, so having a little side bit here, you know, having written and created my own book, Learning to Lead, Leading to Learn, I was really, I didn't want it to just look like a traditional business book and wanted yeah. some, like visualization and graphics in there too. Yeah. And, I mean, yours takes visualization to a whole nother level, which fits the content, but I thought you did a, a wonderful job both Thank in you. the writing and in the visualization layout and um, in the color. So well done on that. You can see all my, you know, sticky notes in here as well. Uh, so thank you. And I, I encourage people to go check, uh, pick it up. Where can people get the collaboration equation, Jim? Uh, the easiest place is on Amazon. Yep. Uh, I hate to say it. Uh, I probably shouldn't say it, but the easiest place is on Amazon. Yep. I agree. <laughs> Best place to get my book too. Um, they, you know, just in time printing is pretty yep. fantastic. And if people want to reach out to you, learn more about your work and your company's work, where should they go? So you want to go to modusinstitute.com and you can sign up for the, the network there for free. You will join me and about now 2,500 other professionals worldwide trying to solve these problems. And all you have to do is DM me once you get in there. So I am I am the most reachable I have ever been. Uh, so please do please do reach out. I obviously love to talk about these things. Yeah, great. And I encourage everyone to um, send comments about this interview and questions that you have for either Jim or me as well in in any of the locations that we are publicizing the uh, the interview as well as um, the on my website kbjanderson.com where this interview will be living. So thank you so much, Jim. It's been thank an you. absolute pleasure. Again, if you want to learn, uh, you can watch this in video on YouTube, audio um, on your favorite podcast, or read the highlights on my blog. Again, kbjanderson.com. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Jim. It's been a pleasure and I get highlights even better. Yay! <laughs> and a special teaser for those of you who um, are listening now, who during the time that we are releasing this book, Jim is giving away three copies of the collaboration equation to anyone around the world. So sign up for the giveaway in the links that we'll be putting below, all the links below um, for a chance to win one of three copies of the collaboration equation. So thanks, Jim, for uh, giving that as a gift. Oh yeah, let's do this so we can do a little, little photo for everyone. Woo! That's right. All right. Thanks and uh, make sure you share your lucky URL to increase your odds of winning. <laughs> <laughs>